In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. Welcome to the Men of God Network. The Men of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. Today I want to tell you the story about a missionary named Betsy Stockton, but... I want to start at the beginning. How did I discover who this lady was? Very early on, when I'd gotten to Grand Rapids, Michigan, probably January, February of 1989, as I commonly did, I would go to the used bookstores in town, mostly Kriegel and Baker. And I happened to be in Kriegel Bookstore one day, and Ken Kriegel had just bought the remains of the bookstore called the Bible Truth Depot. If you haven't heard of it, it's in Swingle, Pennsylvania. It was originally started by I.C. Herendine, the man that published the original Bible tracts of A.W. Pink and some of his original writings. So there were 10,000 volumes that were piled up against the walls on the floor, waiting for him to go through to price and to shelve. And since I wasn't yet working, I decided to go one by one through each of those volumes and discover what was there. I didn't know a lot about Reformed authors like I do now, but I knew enough to know the name of Ashbel Green because he had been one of the presidents of the College of New Jersey. And I also knew that he was influential in 1812 with Archibald Alexander as they started the Princeton Theological Seminary. One of the reasons they started that seminary in the first place was that Ashbel Green was concerned in the direction the College of New Jersey was going. And he and Archibald Alexander and others had a desire to see a school specifically to prepare young 
Presbyterian men for the ministry. So there was a set of books there called The Christian Advocate. I believe it was missing one or two volumes. Since then, we found one of them. And it was first edition, rebound, and because of the notoriety of Ashbel Green and my respect for Princeton Seminary, mostly because of my love of Archibald Alexander, I bought these books, a set of books, which are still in my library. And I never even discovered until a couple of years later when I opened up volume two that the autograph of Ashbel Green and a note that he wrote to a college that he donated a set of these works to was in that volume. But now, what does the story of Betsy Stockton have to do with Ashbel Green? And this is where it gets very interesting. I'm reading from a contribution of the Log College Press, a website that I have used very frequently, and one of its web contributors is a friend of mine named Andrew Myers. But Betsy Stockton has her own entry in there, and she never knew exactly the details of her birth. They remain vague to this day. Secondary sources put her birth a bit earlier than 1800, most commonly 1798, but almost always accompanied by a question mark. These sources also suggest that her father was a white man whose identity is yet unknown. Her mother was most likely an enslaved woman in the Princeton household of Robert Stockton. Now, this is important because Robert Stockton's daughter, Elizabeth, became the future wife of Ashbel Green. So, Robert Stockton was a member of New Jersey's most politically prominent family of the Revolutionary Era. At least two white women in the Stockton family had the nickname Betsy before her, and it could well be that the baby Betsy received her given name not from her own birth mother, but from someone on the white side of the Stockton clan, using the diminutive form of the family name for the mixed-race newborn child. Well, in any event, she went by Betsy throughout her entire life, and at least by 1816, she also used the surname Stockton. Well, while she was a young child, she was taken from her birth mother and placed in the Philadelphia household of Robert Stockton's daughter, Elizabeth, and her now husband, the Reverend Ashbel Green, perhaps as a gift, perhaps as part of a legal settlement. The first record of her presence there comes from a brief September 1804 entry in Ashbel Green's diary when he noted that he corrected Bet for some form of mischief, asserting his role as master over the enslaved six-year-old. Three years later, when Elizabeth Stockton Green died, Betsy Stockton remained under Green's property, first as an enslaved child in Philadelphia, where Green served as pastor of the Second Presbyterian Church, and then as a slave, or more likely indentured servant in Princeton, when he assumed the presidency of the College of New Jersey in 1812. Throughout the hundreds of pages of his meticulously kept diary, Green made occasional references to Betsy, or Hetty, Het, Betty, or Bet, as he variously called her. And Green's terse but often revealing notes remain the primary written record of Stockton's early years. Ashbel Green would be the dominant authority figure in her life for at least two decades, and his relationship with her lasted well after she had become an adult woman. Well, what is missing in this history is the fact that Ashbel Green actually manumitted Betsy as a slave. In other words, she was now free. But being free, she still wanted to later on, get an education. The Greens themselves were reformed-minded people who supported the abolition of slavery, and that's why she was manumitted, or freed. 
In addition to crediting him as a progressive thinker on the issue of slavery, the entry also portrays Ashbel Green as a master who supported Betsy Stockton's education through tutoring and the use of his enormous private library. Most accounts of Stockton's early years, including the one at hand, rely on an 1821 letter of recommendation for her to the American Board of Foreign Commissioners. Well, we have to uh, issue the missing information again. She had actually been converted during a revival under Ashbel Green's ministry. She became a Christian, and she began to have a desire for missions. In fact, in the first place, she had wanted to go back to Africa and bring the gospel there, but she was counseled that that may not be safe. For a while, she went to live with a relative of Ashbel Green's. But in 1816, she came back to live in that household, apparently still under Green's authority. When she gained admission to full membership in Princeton's First Presbyterian Church in September 1816, the church records identified her as a colored woman living in the family of the Reverend Dr. Green. Green later wrote that Stockton met with a saving change of heart while she lived in my family. In the summer of 1816, he also wrote with a rather hazy memory that at the age of 20, as near as I can judge, I gave her her freedom and have since paid her wages as a hired woman. If she were indeed 20, that would make the date 1817 or 1818. Whether Green meant freedom from slavery or from indentured servitude is unclear, although probably the latter. Now, during this time, she still had a burden for missions, and she'd learned of the plans of uh, Charles S. Stewart, who was a student of Princeton Theological Seminary and a friend of the Green family to go to Hawaii, which was then known as the Sandwich Islands, as a missionary. She expressed a desire to go with him and his family. Dr. Green and her Sabbath school teacher wrote letters of recommendation to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Stockton was commissioned by the board as a missionary and became the first single American woman sent overseas as a missionary. Her contract with the board and with the steward said that she went neither as an equal nor as a servant, but as an humble Christian friend to the stewards, and provided that she was not to be more occupied with domestic duties than the other missionaries. The team set sail from New Haven, Connecticut on November 22, 1822 for a five-month voyage. The stewards and Stockton settled at Lahana on Maui. She was a teacher of the first mission school open to the common, non-chiefly people of Hawaii. She also trained native Hawaiian teachers who took over from her upon her departure until the arrival of another missionary. She returned with the Stewarts to the U.S. in 1825 due to Mrs. Stewart's poor health. A version of her Hawaiian diary was published in the Christian Advocate. This is the set of magazines that I was telling you about that I had purchased a Creole bookstore. She stayed with the Stewart household until about 1830. In a magazine called The Religious Intelligencer, there is a note that comes from the Sandwich Islands, remember that at the time was Hawaii, that says, within the month past, a short letter and part of a journal has been received by the editor from Betsy Stockton, a colored young woman, one of the missionaries to these islands who is particularly attached to the family of the Reverend Mr. Stewart. Extracts from the letter and journal are subjoined. It appears that previous and more particular communications which have not yet been received in this country had been made relative to the mission after the arrival of the last reinforcement. The journal from which the following extracts are given was begun immediately after the writer left the house of the editor. 
and has been regularly continued ever since. It is only from the former part of this journal, after the commencement of the voyage, that the subjoined selections have been made. To us they appear interesting and instructive, especially when we consider that the writer is a young woman of African descent, who was never sent to school a day in her life, but acquired all her knowledge by careful attention to the instruction which she received in the Green family, and by her own efforts after she had obtained her freedom at the age of 20. Her present age is about 25. A missionary life at sea has not been so often and so particularly described as that on land. So Lahaina, Maui, June 15, 1823, a letter from Betsy Stockton. Dear Sir, after a pleasant voyage of five months, we arrived in safety at these islands on the 27th of April last. We anchored off Honoruru on the island of Oahu, but did not leave the ship until the 10th of May, owing to the state of Mrs. Stewart's health, who had been confined two weeks before we arrived. I am very much attached to both Mr. and Mrs. Stewart. They treat me with the greatest kindness. A missionary's life is very laborious, but pleasant. Do, sir, pray for me. Were you on missionary ground, you would know how to pray for us. I wish it were in my power to give you an account to some of the trials to which we are called. But at present I cannot. Captain Gardner of the Dawn is waiting at the door and will sail in a few hours. You will please to excuse my sending so small a part of my journal. It is all I have copied. I am ashamed of it, but I know you will view its faults with the eye of charity. I have a few things for Mr. J, but cannot send them at present. Remember me to all the dear family. 18,000 miles have not separated my heart from you. I dream of you all very often, and though I cannot say that I wish to return, yet the thought of never seeing you again sometimes almost overcomes me. The natives are a very pleasant people, but indeed they are much dirtier than I expected to find them. They eat baked dogs, raw fish, and so on. The houses are so small that they have to creep in at the door. What is considered a large house is about the size of our old root house. The house we occupy, however, is larger. Two weeks after we arrived at the islands, we were sent to this place, which is considered the best part of the whole. The productions are melons, bananas, sweet potatoes, and so on. I have time to write no more. The ship has not come to anchor and will leave us in a few minutes. Ask Mr. J to tell my mother that I am well and happy. Please to write to me as often as you can. If you knew with what anxiety I look for a letter, you would pity me. Mr. Stewart wrote to you a few days since. I am still with a grateful heart to yours, Betsy Stockton. Another letter from her journal from the ship Thames at sea, November 20th, 1822. Here begins the history of things known only to those who have bid the American shores a long adieu. We were employed in arranging our berths, clothes, and so on all day, and as the weather was calm, we were unable to go on without much difficulty. The weather became stormy, and the seasickness commenced. It blew very hard in the day, and in the night increased to a gale. Seasickness increased with it. I was myself very sick. Saturday morning at daybreak, ship to sea. The water rushed into the cabin. 
I saw it with very little fear and felt inclined to say, The Lord reigns, let us all rejoice. I was so weak that I was almost unable to help myself. At ten o'clock I went on deck. The scene that presented itself was to me the most sublime I ever witnessed. How, thought I, can those who go down to the sea in ships deny the existence of God? The day was spent in self-examination. This, if ever, is the time to try my motives and leave in my native land. I found myself at times unwilling to perish so near my friends, but soon became composed and resigned to whatever should be the will of my Heavenly Father. I believe that my motives were pure, and a calm and heavenly peace soon took possession of my breast. Oh, that it were always with me as at this day. Sabbath. The weather was still squally, and our family still in bad health. We had no public service today. My soul longed for the courts of the Lord, but my heart was still rejoicing in the strength of my God. The ocean has become much smoother than it has been for some time. Our family are recovering very fast. Nothing particular has occurred today. The weather is delightful and we feel much better. The ladies wanted a pudding for dinner. Two or three volunteered their services and a pudding was made. I, for my part, felt no inclination either to make or eat it. I stayed with Mrs. Stewart. In the midst of their business, a man on the mast called out, A sail ho! We were all elate for a few minutes. If we had seen a friend who had been absent for a long time, we could not have held him with more delight. We bore for the ship and soon discovered her to the pen of Philadelphia. Preparations were made for speaking her. The sea was too rough to permit us to send letters. She came near enough to hail us, but we could only say all's well after being at sea a week. December 1st, Sabbath. My soul longed again for the house of the Lord. I endeavored to find him present with me, and soon indeed found that he was near to all that call on him. I enjoyed the day, although we were prevented from having worship until afternoon, owing to the roughness of the weather and the unsettled state of the ship. Number two, employed in making arrangements in the cabin, the day fair and the ship running at the rate of six miles an hour. The weather is much warmer than I have felt it since I left home. In the evening, we had the monthly concert of prayer. We are almost settled and things are in good order. The bell rings at daylight and we have prayers at sunrise. Mrs. Stewart is getting much better. Nothing particular has occurred today. We are still on our course direct for Cape de Verde. The weather is good and all of us are in good health and spirits. The captain and officers attend our meeting and the sailors appear to treat the missionaries with respect. On the 23rd, the weather is delightful and the crew all engaged in making oil of two black fish killed yesterday. This is fine amusement for the missionaries. We have had corn parched in the oil and dough nuts fried in it. Some of the company liked it very much. I cannot prevail on myself to eat it. I tasted the flesh and liver of the fish, which were very good. The flesh is very much like beef and the liver like a hog's. The 24th. At 11 o'clock we had a heavy gale. It did no damage to the rigging. I was amused very much during the gale by one of the landsmen, as they call them, who was ordered to slack the weather bowling, but not understanding the phrase, he let it go. Such accidents in a squall cause no small noise and make our captain lift up his voice like a trumpet. 
Some of our family like a gill very much. I have not quite to that yet. However, I can view it with very little emotion in the daytime, and at night I sometimes feel unpleasantly. My bed hangs so near the cabin windows that I have a full view of the water, and during a gale the waves appear as if they were coming directly into the cabin. Christmas Day. How unlike the last, but the day was pleasant, and I enjoyed myself very much, yet could not forbear thinking of my native land. We expected to have made St. Jago, but the wind not favoring us, we were obliged to put about for Cape Horn without landing. This is something of a trial, as it disappointed all our expectations of communication with our friends. We saw a large flock of flying fish. They rise from the water a little distance when pursued by a larger fish, and sometimes fly on board the ship. They have a delicious flavor and are equal to any freshwater fish I have ever tasted. Sabbath day, the 30th. Had prayer meeting in the morning and preached in the afternoon at 4 o'clock. Mr. Stewart preached from 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. I enjoyed the Sabbath very much and thought I felt something of the love of God in my heart. But still I felt as if I was declining in the spiritual life. I attend a little to the study of the Bible and find it pleasant, yet I find a void within my breast that is painful. Scenes which constantly present themselves to my view are new and interesting, and I find they have a tendency to draw my mind from him who is or ought to be my only joy. With a poor publican, I will say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. At six in the evening, we caught two sharks and saw a number of dolphins. The flesh of the shark is very good when young. From the editors of the magazine, it says, As we were about to send the foregoing extracts to the press, we received two letters from the Reverend Mr. Stewart. They were written, it appears, at the distance of five months from each other and sent in different directions, so as to divide between them a circumnavigation of the globe, and yet they both came to us by the same post. The one under date of October 22, 1823, contains the latest intelligence of the Sandwich Islands mission that has yet been published. We give large extracts from both. Mission House in Honoruru, Port Oahu, Sandwich Islands, May 24, 1823. Respected and beloved sir, I have time merely before the selling of the Arab which carries letters for America to Canton to inform you of our safe arrival at this place on the morning of the 27th of April, after a most prosperous and pleasant voyage. Betsy and myself have both kept regular journals, copies of which we design, according to our engagement, to transmit to you, and shall send them by the next ship that sails from this port for America, which will be in about six weeks. We cannot possibly prepare them in time for the Arab. We are all in excellent health. Bessie says she never felt better, looks remarkably well, and is very happy in her situation. Sometimes during the voyage, she felt a little lonesome, being without any bosom friend, which all the rest of the family had. But since the 11th of April, she has felt nothing of the kind. Mrs. Stewart then committed to her care an infant son who seems to have filled the vacuum in B's heart and beguiles her already of the moments which before left an opening for thoughts of sadness. I am happy to say that Mrs. Stewart enjoys the most perfect health and is greatly pleased with her situation in these distant islands and in the prospect of usefulness to this people. 
It is not determined where she will permanently be established, but probably at Lahaina, on the island of Maui. If not there, either at Koroha or Ohaidu, on the island of Hawaii. The mission is in prosperous circumstances, and the hope of its support here were never brighter. Truly, the fields are already ripe for the harvest, and we may add, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Well, we will close this interesting story with this. In the years preceding her own emancipation, Betsy Stockton spent much of her time educating herself, eventually making the most of her manumission by becoming not just literate, but committed to learning. Once free, she spent the rest of her life educating children of color, first in the Sandwich Islands and in the Philadelphia Infant School, and finally for over three decades in the two most important institutions in Princeton's African-American community, the Witherspoon Street Church and the town's lone public colored school. Her success in each setting defined the single most meaningful constant in her life story, about which the historical record is clear. Everyone who observed her work, black and white alike, came away with unqualified admiration. Even more important, her students came away with the critical essentials of education, reading, writing, and arithmetic, to be sure, but also respect both for themselves and for Betsy Stockton. She died on October 24, 1865, just a few months after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the end of the Civil War. In Princeton, her funeral brought together a considerable crowd of both races, a highly respectable congregation of her own color, and representatives from many of the most distinguished families of Princeton with clergymen and other friends. From the neighboring cities of New York and Philadelphia, President John McLean Jr. of the College of New Jersey conducted the service and several other local notables offered their tributes. But for all the good work she had done in Princeton, and for all the goodwill many of its inhabitants expressed at her passing, Betsy Stockton did not want to be buried in town. Obituaries noted that it was her desire to repose after death near the graves of the family with which she had been most closely associated in life, that of her fellow missionaries Charles and Harriet Stewart, and her remains now rest with many of theirs amid the pine groves of the beautiful cemetery of Lakewood, Cooperstown, New York. The close connection she made in her missionary days with the Stewarts stayed with Betsy Stockton throughout her life, and her burial in a family plot symbolized the loyalty she had shown them long after they returned from the Sandwich Islands. Over 30 years after her death, Charles C. Forrest Stewart, a baby born on board the Thames in 1823, described a proposal in Princeton to make a tablet to her memory and send it to the site of her missionary work. The Missionary Society in Maui turned down the memorial offer, however, apparently on the grounds that Bessie Stockton was here but a short time, and though she did loyal service, she was but one of many at that time. Although intended as a polite rejection, this language could also be read differently as a succinct affirmation of Betsy Stockton's place in history, not just for her two years in Hawaii, but for the rest of her life in the United States. If she did loyal service while being but one of the many at the time, that is exactly the point. Betsy Stockton is emblematic of the thousands of people who worked in the grassroots obscurity of their local communities to challenge the status quo of slavery and racism in American society. It's their often quiet commitment to the cause that counts, and their loyal service deserves more historical attention. 
In Princeton, there could be no such question about the impact of her work in the town's African-American community. Her loyal service lasted quite a long time, and to a great extent, she was one and the only. The most fitting symbol of her exceptional status is a simple but elegant stained glass window still in the Witherspoon Street Church, which commemorates Stockton's memory and the lasting legacy of her chosen role in Princeton's African-American community. Presented by the scholars of Elizabeth Stockton, the use of the formal version of her name, Elizabeth, suggests a reflection of the more formal term her students use to describe themselves, scholars. For people whose right to equal education or education of any sort had been so long questioned, denigrated, and disdained, this tribute to their teacher also serves as a tribute to their own achievement. By giving Betsy Stockton a prominent place in a black community's main church, her window in the Witherspoon Street Church is still visible today on walking tours of the town. They underscored her place in the community's collective memory. Now, a century and a half after Betsy Stockton's death, the memory that forms a part of the people's history in Princeton points the way to securing her larger place in American history. That quote was from an article by Gregory Nobles, a professor of history. His latest book is John James Audubon, The Nature of the American Woodsman, 2017. He is now working on a book about the life of Betsy Stockton. Thank you for tuning in to the Narrated Puritan on the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network. The Man of God Network.